this week on the Backtable Podcast. I think that the most important thing is that they need to speak to people in the healthcare realm and get advice that is specific to particular diseases, that nothing is really blanket. I'll use vascular surgery as an example because this is what I do. So I know the nuances of a vascular patient. I understand the healthcare and socioeconomic disparities that lead a person to ultimately be sitting in my office post-stroke, post-heart attack, and now about to have their leg chopped off. And that same person now being unable to get their eloquence because their insurance doesn't cover it. And like all these other, I get that. And so having people like myself who understand that sort of thing, advising on policy without the kind of using healthcare as like a, as a platform to try to get reelected, I think would be the biggest change. everyone and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. In two head-to-head trials, Boston Scientific's Alluvia drug-eluting stent demonstrated superior clinical outcomes compared to other therapies treating SFA disease, including primary patency as high as 92.1% at 1 year. Alluvia is a purpose-built platform with a polymer specifically designed to treat SFA disease and is the longest available peripheral drug-eluting stent. To learn more about how Alluvia can help you take the fight to PAD, visit bostonscientific.com forward slash Alluvia. That's E-L-U-V-I-A from Boston Sci. For more than a decade, Reflow Medical has designed and engineered medical devices that respond to unmet clinical needs. The Wingman Crossing Catheter with its unique extendable beveled tip and an expanded indication for CTOs. The Specs LP, created to meet the need for a low-profile version of the Specs shapeable support catheter. And the new line of core catheters that answers the call for a suite of effective tools to use in challenging PCI procedures. Now, back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington, and my guest today is Dr. Anahita Dua, vascular surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital and associate professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. She's also the co-director of the Peripheral Arterial Disease Center, the clinical director of research, the director of the vascular lab, and the associate director of the wound care center. That is quite a few hats that you wear, Dr. Dua. (laughs) (laughs) And I love them all. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Really lovely to meet you. Before we start, tell me a little bit about your clinical practice. Certainly. So I finished my uh, vascular surgery fellowship at Stanford and then started at Mass General right away. And really my interest is in all arterial things, but my niche practice is really in limb salvage. And so I do very advanced endo and open procedures to try to salvage limbs that otherwise have been deemed, quote, no option. I also do a significant amount of aortic surgery, carotid surgery as well, of course, and I do do some venous disease and dialysis access. I really wanted to pride myself becoming a vascular surgeon and being able to do everything, but indeed my heart and soul really sits with limb salvage. Oh man, a lady of my own heart. That sounds great. So what was your career path leading up to your current job? So I was always going to be a doctor. I didn't know what kind. And so I had started out very young, actually reading a a children's book in Hindi. So I'm I'm Indian by background. And so my parents wanted to teach me Hindi when I was younger. And there was a children's book when I was like seven years old that had a story about the invention of ether, 
which happened at Mass General Hospital. And I'll distinctly remember reading about it and thinking, I am going to work here someday. So I don't really have some sort of a windy path. It was always zone in, I'm going to this place and I'm going to be <laughs> a surgeon. But I did do a general surgery residency at the Medical College of Wisconsin, which was excellent, and then went on to do again my vascular fellowship for two years at Stanford. I did do a two-year postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Texas in Houston, which was incredible and really was a foundation for the lab I run today in coagulation. And I did get along the way an MBA and a master's in trauma sciences. And the reason for that is because when I was much younger, I went to a talk that said, if you want to ultimately think about leading a division, thinking about an MBA to really understand that jargon and that style would be helpful to the people that you ultimately end up leading. And so uh, instead of a PhD, I thought, let's do an MBA. Wow. Quite an impressive pathway. Thank you. <laughs> that sounds like a lot to balance. You have a family as well, right? I do. I have a husband who just sold his company. So he was a CEO and now is in the earnout period for a, a company that he now works with. And I do have two children. I have a daughter, Shefali, who's five years old, and a son, Veer, who's two years old, and a dog named Leo, and a mother-in-law who lives with me. So that's, of course, the most painful part of my life. But it keeps me out of the house. And so then I can do a lot of work, as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, don't knock it. I'm a, I'm across the country from all my family, and it's definitely a lot harder than I thought it would be. But yeah, having some help in the house can be can be more than you think. Um, that's really cool that your mother-in-law lives with you, actually. Oh, my God. Talk about grass is greener, everybody. That is not true. OK, don't listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to bring you on the show to talk a little bit about your involvement in politics and about your PAC. Could you give me a little background about how you got involved in politics? Yes, absolutely. So I really had never been involved. The only time I ever had a little brush with it was the Society for Vascular Surgery, of which I'm a member. When I was in fellowship, I had a traveling fellowship that I had won to go, awarded rather, I should say, to go to D.C. and meet some of the people on the Hill to kind of see how policy is made, right? So just a little brush with it. But then the Uvalde school shooting happened, as you know, fairly recently. And I have young kids. And I came home that day. I was on call. I came home that day and I just didn't know what to do because my daughter was going to start in public school that following year. And I ended up in my not knowing what to do, lying in bed at night. I ended up buying her a bulletproof backpack, which they make in like beautiful colors. And like, it's a very nice backpack. And I was like, what am I doing? You know, and the same thing kind of with my patients, too. You know, I said I do limb salvage, right? OK, so one of the things about limb salvage is that statistically, Five black legs are amputated to every one white leg. This is a fact. And, you know, we talk about, oh, why does that happen? Oh, maybe African-American patients are sicker. That's not true. Then we say, oh, uh, something about insurance, something about social you know, disparities in health. All of that stuff has a little room, but it's not the point. What really is happening is that when a white person comes to a doctor and a black person comes to a doctor, the white patient is getting multiple attempts at limb salvage, up to five or six whereas the black patient has their leg amputated by 1.5 times of attempts at limb salvage. And how do you change that? Well, we say, oh, let's go and educate the doctor. Yeah, that works a little bit, but doctors are not consciously doing this, right? So how do you change it really? You change legislation. If Medicare said, hey, guess what? We're not going to reimburse for any amputation that you don't prove you've done all of these other things too. You've not standardized. We're not going to reimburse. Suddenly overnight, you're dropping the amputation rate. Remember I told you I did a master's in trauma? 
One of my professors, this guy, Dr. Kareem Brohi, amazing man. He's a vascular surgeon as well over uh, in, in the UK. He was teaching us how to build a trauma center. And he said, you know, throw out all your assumptions. Get out of the box. Really, like, think from the beginning. Do you really need a CT scan at this time? Or were you just trained to believe that you do? And so I started to think as well, you know, how do I break out of all these assumptions and just come kind of to the, the drawing board again to try to, like, rebuild a society in which we have fairness when we're dealing with things like gun violence, when we're dealing with things like leg amputations, and we can get back to really solving some of those problems. And the only way forward, it seemed, was through legislation. Because ultimately, if you make it a law, people will follow. You know, we've been saying smoking is bad for centuries, really. But how did we drop the smoking rate? We said we're banning it in bars. How do we get people to put on their seatbelts? We say the cops are going to hit you with a $500 fine. Even though everybody knows that putting on your seatbelt makes it safe. So the way the PAC started is initially I thought, okay, I'm going to run for Congress. And then I thought, no, I'm not, because that's not actually what I want to do. And the person who is currently in our district is wonderful, and I live in Massachusetts. So me running for Congress, specifically with my views, wouldn't really change much. But what if I could get 10 people into Congress that were sort of like me? And that's where the PAC was born, because we're in America, money talks, and if you can find people that are in this case, healthcare providers, because not because healthcare providers are any smarter or better, but it's the understanding. In this day and age, you need people who get healthcare because what is just destroying our country? It is the healthcare angle. Gun violence and gun control is a healthcare issue. And so being able to figure out how we can get people there that can vote together in solidarity would be the way that we could pass legislation that ultimately could make these changes, like the Medicare thing I talked about with the limb salvage, which, of course, has a lot of complexities. But that's why you need people who get it, so they can talk about the nuances. And so to that end, I started this pack, went out and got a couple of people that are involved, basically, in forming PACs and supporting candidates and, like, that world. It was my first exposure to it. And they basically said, again, money talks. You need to raise money, and then you need to pick X amount of people based on the money that you raise to support their campaigns. And we did exactly that. Within a couple of months, we blew past our number that we were meant to raise. We went over 100,000. And then we were able to fully support five candidates, of which two did go to Congress. So now we have two people in Congress that are Dr. Cardero from Colorado and Nurse Underwood. And both of them are going to make change. And as we move forward with the PAC, we're hoping to get more of a critical mass, especially in the 2024 election, which is going to be a presidential year, so more people are going to come out and vote, hopefully. Gosh, that's amazing. And you did that all after the Uvalde shooting, which was fairly recently. I mean, that's really, really, really fantastic. Okay, so walk me through the process from the inception of the idea to the actual creation of the PAC. Initially, when my general counsel had said this is a, an area where you could really make an impact, I first sat down and I drew out how I was going to approach donors and what type of person I was looking for to support to move forward. It's not just any doctor. Specifically, this pack is for Democrats only. Sorry, I, I said doctor. That's a misspeak on my part. It's any healthcare worker. And actually, that's a critical point because healthcare workers in general are the ones that understand the environment. And so that's a little bit different from another pack that does exist that is doctor specific. But once we identified the people who were currently running, we then approached them to offer our support. And I, every day between the hours of 5 p.m. and 7 p.m., which were nighttime hours, because of course it couldn't impact my work, right? I'm working full-time clinically, surgeon, 
you're working about 200% of the time from what I'm hearing. <laughs> Life is short, but, but yes. I mean, so, I, so in those hours, I, I made a list of all of my colleagues and I, I started making those phone calls, telling them what I was doing, telling them who we were supporting, and then telling them where exactly this money would go. Absolute transparency, very similar to how I talk to my patients. Informed consent. This is what's going on. This is why. And I, I started every, I mean, people would say the classic things. Well, how do you know your money is going to make a difference? How do you? I don't know. In fact, I told them, you know what? I cannot tell you for sure if you take your money out of your wallet and you light it on fire, if it would have, at least that would keep you warm. I don't know if this is going to have any impact. But what I know is we can't sit on our butts while children are getting mowed down. Our patients' legs are getting chopped off. Reimbursements are getting cut. I mean, you name it. You know, the insulin cap, we are trying to say, hey, diabetes is going to ravage the world by 2045 right? And the number of legs that are going to get chopped off that is direct related to that. Yeah, money cannot buy health, money cannot buy happiness, but money definitely can buy insulin. And so if you can do that, you can save so many people. But you know, the insulin cap, it didn't pass. And it didn't pass because it was blocked by some of the Republican vote. And that is the reason why I had made this a Democrat-only thing. Because people do say, well, why not bipartisan? And I have multiple friends and colleagues, and there are even people in Congress right now that are Republicans that I very much support. It's not that I have any issue with Republicans at all. The issue is that I'm not okay anymore with, okay, I'm winning on the reimbursement issue, but I'm losing on the gun control issue or the abortion issue. You know, we need people who are going to be logical and thoughtful across the board. And in this day and age, in a Congress that we currently have, in the state of this country, unfortunately, you do have to pick a side. That's just the way it is. And so that's my choice. And, and I... It's your pack. Yeah, that's your choice. It's your pack. You do what you that's want, it. right? Right. And I lost a lot of money that way. I mean, believe me, if I said I, I was bipartisan, there, you know, a lot more checks would have flown. But the whole point of this was to stand for something ultimately get the type of people in there that would be able to reach across the aisle and shake hands with another person and say, let's do this together. The way that, you know, you're an IR physician, I'm a vascular surgeon. I have a patient right now, actually, that has this horrible abscess that's very close to some of the important structures in the body. And I feel at this point, because the abscess is sort of walled off and some of the other data about him, that he should be left alone. My IR colleagues think that they can get to it and be safe. We've had a conversation about it. I support them fully. I'll be there if something does happen. You know, we work together to get to a resolution, even though I started out believing, no, 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 this guy shouldn't be drained. And that's what I kind of want to see in Congress. That sort of back and forth. You're not fully winning. I'm not fully winning. But the country can move forward. So how do you pick which candidates you're going to support? A lot to do with policy and with personality. You know, like, I think as physicians, we develop this sense of people. You meet someone in clinic and you have kind of a sense of the type of patient you're talking to. Or you meet a colleague and you get a sense of, and I feel like I am quite good at that. And that is really how I pick the candidates. I look to see, number one, is it a healthcare worker? Of course, that's first and foremost. And is it a Democrat? Okay, first and foremost. All right. But after that, I have a conversation with them. I get on the phone with them and I talk to them. And it's always a phone conversation. There's no one else there. And we just straight talk. And I get a sense of the type of person it is. And then I'm looking for somebody that I would let babysit my kids, you okay. know, like a good human being. <laughs> sure. They got to pass the babysitter test. Yeah. They got to. That's the key. You can't babysit my kids. You can't babysit everyone else's kids either, right? And make decisions on us. And somebody who's not, I mean, look, we have to be realistic too, right? This is politics. These people, this is their job. They need to get reelected. And you know whose fault that is? It's our fault. 
We are the public of the United States that allowed the system to get to a point where it is driven by finances and where running a race in Boston to win a race, you need to have like two to three million dollars in donations. I mean, that's insanity, right? And that's just for a congressional race, let alone senator, let alone running for office for like the president. So we have set up a system where we have kind of put these people who want to do good in a position where they're forced to do not evil, but like, you know, sell their souls a little bit. And that's not fair to them either. Right. And then we and then we blast them for making, you know, deals with the devil here and there. But what choice do they have when they need to raise this money? And they I'm sure have the mentality of at least I'll get to Congress and then I can make good. But then they can't either because the party politics is also difficult and it's all about, you know, raising capital. So I know I'm like sort of saying like the opposite, like then, then you might say, well, if you know all this, why are you doing a PAC? It's, it's all pointless. Well, it's not, right? Because one of the beauties of America also is you can course correct. We have course corrected multiple times. And we now know that this is an issue. And with getting a critical mass of people in there and changing some of the laws that govern how we do money, how we do PACs and super PACs, how we force people to immediately, as soon as they get elected, start looking for donations for their next campaign two years from now. We got to change all that. Maybe term limits, for example, things of that nature, you know, to help people along. That's really where I feel like we can make a difference. And that's how I select people, by picking people that have that sort of like nimble, intelligent mentality. I gotcha. Yeah. What do you think the most pressing issue is right now that can have a meaningful change that Congress can make to improve healthcare in America? I think that the most important thing is that they need to speak to people in the healthcare realm and get advice that is specific to particular diseases, that nothing is really blanket. For example, I'll use vascular surgery as an example because this is what I do. So I know the nuances of a vascular patient. I understand the healthcare and socioeconomic disparities that lead a person to ultimately be sitting in my office post-stroke, post-heart attack, and now about to have their leg chopped off. And that same person now being unable to get their eloquence because their insurance doesn't cover it. And like all these other, I get that. And so having people like myself who understand that sort of thing, advising on policy without the kind of using healthcare as like a, as a platform to try to get reelected, I think would be the biggest change because that's what's happened in some of our other countries. I didn't mention, I did medical school in the United Kingdom. And so I'm very uh, familiar with the NHS, which is the nationalized healthcare system on that side. And I actually worked on the NHS for one year as a foundation doctor. If you, you just have to open your Twitter to see all the problems that are going on over there. And a lot of it does have to do with using the NHS as a political platform on which to get reelected. Because then it, your intentions are not entirely pure. Now, on the other hand, this is a government system and you, you need the government to be involved in a government system. But maybe a third party coming in that's not one of the elected officials to make intelligent decisions might be the answer versus just trying to use it as a ploy to get what you need. I think that would make a huge difference. No, totally. Specific to vascular surgery and what we talked about earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that maybe Medicare could have a set of tests that a person has to pass before they can get an amputation. So in your mind, walk me through that idea a little bit or flesh it out for me. Okay, so you're going you're gonna to be appalled by this as an IR doctor, but these are facts. Okay, I told you I do a lot of research, right? So I am actually the national primary investigator, the PI, for a study called the Clarity Study, okay? It's a study that is basically looking at 
what amputation rates are in the United States today. Just an observational study. Because unlike other disciplines like aortic disease or carotid disease, we don't have any standardization for the way in which we approach patients that have limb problems. So if you have a patient come to your clinic and you look at them, you just look at them, you walk in the clinic and you look at them and you're like, this leg is not salvageable. I'm going to send you to a general surgeon for an amputation. You can do that. And nobody, there's no harm, no foul. There's no set of standards where someone says, hey, Dr. Bahidi, did you get an angiogram? Do you know if there's a bypass target? How do you know that this wound is not just frostbite and just the toe needs to go? How do you know the leg needs to go? There's none of that. We have none of that. So what's happened and what we saw in our clarity study and the results will come out soon, we've, we've actually presented it already at a couple of conferences, is that there is a significant proportion of patients that get amputated without ever getting an angiogram. And an angiogram just for our, I mean, I know this is a vascular and endovascular podcast, but of course, for those who, who are listening who don't know, it's basically where you push some dye down the patient's leg to get a sense of what blood vessels are open or clotted off so that you can then make connections potentially with a bypass or put a stent in or at least know what you're dealing with. I mean, imagine a situation, okay, where you had a patient that was like, oh, I came to the ER, my stomach hurts, and someone does a little x-ray and they see a mass, okay? Imagine just saying, oh, I'm going to take out your pancreas. Like, what? You know, you can't do that. You have to work the patient. You have to. And why? Because money has been put into legislation. And there's a big, it's not a pack, but like basically a, a lobbyist group that is supporting cancer care, multidisciplinary cancer care. And that is why and now we have uh, President Biden saying the cancer side of things is now the moonshot project for his administration. But why? Because peripheral artery disease kills more people than all cancers combined. That's a fact. That's not my feelings. So how did we get here? Well, we got here because the right groups and the right money and the right people are talking to Congress about a very important issue. Cancer is very important. But then NIH dollars go to that. Genetics research goes to that. And then what happens to our poor diabetics who are having their legs cut off, they're having their strokes, and they're having their heart attack? So to flesh out something like what your original question was, what I would do is say we start with developing a standard of care that then is implemented as a, like a federal level thing such that anybody who is going to undergo an amputation must have had at a minimum review by some type of vascular or interventionalist who deals with this. So it could be yourself. It could be me. It could be an interventional cardiologist, somebody who does limb salvage, right? A wound care person who can say this is a wound that can be managed in XYZ way. A medicine doctor who deals with the endocrinological side of things. Again, look at the multidisciplinary and somebody who deals with offloading so that the wound doesn't get worse and socioeconomic issues that ultimately can get the patient to a point where they're optimized. If you've done all of this and the patient needs an amputation, okay. Now, the argument to this is you might say, well, what about the patients that come in septic? I mean, they need an amputation right away. Yes, because they're septic. We would have that as part of the uh, standardization. But that's what, how I would flesh something like that out. But only a doctor like you or me would know how to build a guideline like that. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to have the right people in place making the laws. Otherwise, the laws don't make any sense, right? Correct. And then we're all subject to them. So, you know, get into politics, guys. I don't know how you have time for this with all that you do. That is just amazing, really. Yeah, it's the mother-in-law. <laughs> so what's been the community response in the Boston MGH community area to the creation of this pack? Have you faced any pushback from folks maybe who might not see things the way you do? Oh, of course, of course. I mean, that's and it's kind of uncomfortable a little bit. Like, you know, I, I mean, obviously I'm not part of this world. And, and there was a there was an article that was published 
in Commonwealth Magazine, which is a which is a kind of a political t- magazine in that area. And it was a really beautiful article, very well written. But then, you know, it's online and people can leave comments. And so there was a comment left by somebody about like, it was something weird, like, oh, this doctor, this Indian woman who's come from India to take our jobs. It was really weird because I've, I'm, I, I actually, I was actually born in Scotland, but I'm a U.S. citizen and really raised in Wisconsin and uh, as American. And it was just, it was just odd, you know, to see that sort of that side. And the, the person has put their name and stuff on there. You know, it's kind of like shamelessly, which is also kind of... So, and so, you know, there's that sort of pushback. And then there's pushback from my own colleagues in the sense that, you know, the big thing is why you're not, why you're not bipartisan. You know, we got we to hold hands. We got to be friends. And that point is very valid. It's not wrong. It's just that, again, in this day and age, for these types of issues, I mean, you can see it. I mean, look, look what just happened with the Speaker of the House. I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but that was ridiculous. And how we were trying to, to get people to start actually working. I mean, right now, the, the Democrats have a lot of things wrong as well. But it seems like that area is at least some spot where you could have some sort of a pliable discussion and, and come to a consensus. And so that's why I'd done that. And then there was a slew of people. One of the most interesting things I found is I, of course, know a lot of people. And that's how we got to the money number. And there are many people who are very political and have always voiced their opinions about like, you know, the abortion debate, the gun debate, very, very loud and proud. But when it came down to actually putting money behind it, it was amazing the people that came out of the woodwork. It was always the silent ones. It was always wow. not the big white. It was really interesting. Yeah. I was so, t- so I have a number of people where now I'm like, wow, fascinating. You know, you all this talk about healthcare disparities, but when there's actually, of course, there's an element of like, they don't think the money will make a difference. But a lot of it was also just kind of seeing human nature in the raw fashion in a different way. You know, as doctors, we see raw human nature all the time, but this was a different side. And so that was like kind of the biggest hurdle. And just making those phone calls every single day, it was easy because I didn't feel it was for me. You're not supporting me. You're supporting this pack that is hopefully going to send these people to help you, <laughs> you know, so so it made it easy to ask. But I definitely got a, a couple of people that I was surprised they didn't want to support it. And some of the verbiage used was different. But overall, very positive experience. And doctors and healthcare workers seem to really love the idea about having our own voice in a very yeah. tangible way. Yeah, it's something that definitely didn't exist before, but has clearly need, needed a voice and needed some candidates. We're lucky that we have you as an advocate for oh, that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> have you learned any lessons along the way in the creation of this entity that you would change if you had to do it over again or that you would like to share with our audience? The only lesson I've, you know, you probably have gotten this from the conversation, but I'm very much a person. I've been working on this. This is probably my, my greatest fault. I like to get things done. Like I want it done. I want a bow on it. I want it finished. I mean, that's why I became a surgeon. I couldn't handle the lingering oh, we'll check the potassium tomorrow and then we'll see him in outpatient. I just want to know now that the <laughs> cancer is out or that the wound is sure. And so to that end, this process is long and hard. It's very similar to like, you know, for us, like inventing something or spending 10 years of your life in a lab trying to find that one protein to make a difference, to make a drug. You know, and we have to think of politics that way too. There is absolutely no quick fix and it's never going to be perfect. But we need to live in this society and we need to maintaining that zeal to want to keep pushing against a system where you may think there's no hope here is difficult. But that's what we do as doctors, right? We take people where there's no hope and we make it happen. And that's why, again, our personality type and our experiences 
as healthcare workers, we are the people to sit in Congress and do this. Again, not because you're smarter, not because somebody, I mean, a person, you know, who, who runs a bank or, you know, somebody who like cleans our house. These are all people that would be wonderful in Congress. And you want it to represent the American people. But the type of mentality and the willingness to work with others and that collaboration that we have built in the American medical system, that's what I wanted to take to Congress. And so coming back to that repeatedly and remembering that as the main focus of this, I would make that more front and center if I was going to change anything. Because there were some nights where I was just like, so demoralized. And I'm like, what? what? I do not need to be doing this at sure. all. I'm already yeah. a doctor at Mass General. <laughs> Life is good. You know, everyone yeah. was saying like, what are you doing? Right. But just your dream of what it was going to be kind of kept you through those hard nights, huh? And kept you going. And coming home and walking in at night at nine o'clock and my daughter's already asleep and the house mm-hmm. is quiet. And I walk through our, our door and the first thing I see hanging on the clip is the bulletproof backpack. Goodness, what a reminder. Every day, you know what? Okay, tomorrow, bring it on. What are the future directions for your PAC and your personal foray into politics? In terms of the PAC, so I'm in the midst of making a decision as to whether or not the PAC will have board members that will join and we will keep it as Healthcare for Action independent entity or roll into, we've been asked by multiple larger organizations to roll in as the healthcare arm. So either way, we maintain autonomy. The question is just what type. So there's a very big pack that does a lot for scientists and healthcare workers, and they want to have a dedicated healthcare arm because their mission aligns exactly with ours. Try to get people who are in the healthcare space into politics who are Democrats, who are good people. And I would join them in that in that mission and be kind of the, quote, warm contact. So let's say that I'm like, hey, do you know who Dr. Behadi is in Tacoma? She'd be perfect. I would make the phone call to you, introduce myself and say, this is what it would entail, and then help you as somebody, you know, as doctors, we have no understanding of any of this, help you get through the process and ultimately win, which would be the idea. Alternatively, we have our own board and we do exactly the same thing as we did this round and we just stay ourselves. Literally, the only difference between these two things is the bank account. Either it's an independent bank account under Healthcare for Action or it joins with the account for this other larger group that deals with scientists and healthcare workers. And so that's where we're deciding. And and the decision is going to be made, everybody, by the people on our board. So if you are a person that is interested in this, that would like to be involved, please reach out to me, please, because if you'd like to be on the board and we take this to the, and I'm talking to all healthcare workers here, social worker, somebody who does prosthetics, doctor, nurse, please. And then, yeah, we, you know, we keep it our own entity and we get gear up for the 2024 election. In a way, this is kind of the perfect way for healthcare workers to get involved because it involves just money. What do we not have? We have money. We do not have time. So anytime that there's a requirement of I, you need to be somewhere from this time to this time, that's where we get into trouble. But if we can raise from our networks and then help people who want to do this, who are invested, like the, the healthcare workers who have ran this cycle, that's really the ticket to moving this agenda forward. And that falls, to answer your second question, that's exactly where I'm going to stay in terms of politics. I have a lot more power in this position than being, and, and also I'm a very good surgeon and I want to keep operating. I mean, I love <laughs> operating. I love the patients. That's my jam. I hear you, man. 
<laughs> I can't wear a suit every day. Oh, my God. And that's what they have to do in Congress. Every day. I can't believe every it. Every day. No way. <laughs> nope. <laughs> they just have to wear it from the from the like top up, right? The top, so yeah. That they can when they they're seen on C-SPAN, they're wearing their suit jacket. You don't know what's going on down below. Oh my God, you totally don't in Congress. <laughs> Do you have any advice for other young interventionalists who may want to become more involved with policy on a local or a national level? Absolutely, do it. Don't wait for someone to tell you what to do which I know is ironic in answering this question since I'm literally telling you what to do. But <laughs> I mean, what you want, you know, you, you to keep the passion alive and you have to recognize that you're going to be a rarity. And what I mean by that is you're going to talk to your friends and family and everyone's going to have an opinion on politics, right? The same way that all your friends and family have an opinion on grandma's health, but you're the doctor. Oh, right? yeah, I love that. So, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so you have to just push yourself forward and get involved from the very beginning in some of the decision making, right? A lot of times involvement can be as little or as much as you want. It can be as simple as getting the number of signatures necessary to be even to get a candidate on a ballot because you need a certain number of signatures in a county to be able to be on the ballot all the way up to here's $5 million and this is how I'd like you to spend it. And I mean, there is no getting away from it. Money is very important. Now, now there have been races absolutely where people have raised millions of dollars and lost. Okay, so it's not the only thing. But if you don't have the money, it's sort of a non-starter. And so being able to help people who are in that position make it by helping them raise and then helping them spend for appropriate advertising. And then you as a physician has, have a voice. You can go and give talks for that person. You can host a dinner, for example, in your house, which is like a fundraising dinner, and then get involved in like that sort of a, a way and then work on your network. And you would be amazed how many people you know from training, from work. Even though you may think you just go home and go to work and that's all you do every day, you actually know hundreds of thousands of people. So if you have any more questions about that, again, please reach out to me and I'm happy to tell you because it is locally different. It depends on where you are, but some of the generic principles are the same, of course. That's great. That's great. We'll link to your contact info in our show notes so folks can get in touch with you too, if, if that's all right with you. Sure. Uh, just my, my email is probably the best way to go. Awesome. And then I, I understand congratulations are in order. You've had some recent exciting news about an award that you've recently gotten. Could you tell our audience a little bit more about that? Sure. No, thank you. Um, so this is actually, by the, yes, I'm so glad you brought this up because I want to tell our audience, apply for this, please, because you guys are absolutely the people that they want. So President Bush, President Clinton, President Johnson, and President Senior Bush at one point, basically, their institutions came together. So, you know, each president, when they are done, they, they have their own library, like presidential library. So these institutions came together and the Clinton Foundation, the Bush Foundation, formed something called the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program. They take between 40 to 60 people from any discipline every year, okay? And they support you through an independent project that you're trying to lead over a six-month period. You basically go and meet them and speakers and other leaders in, in fields in, across the globe, really, for one week every month for six months and bring back a lot of incredible leadership lessons. But probably the most amazing thing about it is the cohort. You get to cross paths with people who you'll never have met otherwise as physicians, as healthcare workers, and learn from them and learn how to lead. Uh, my project specifically is reducing amputation rates in the Boston area. 
We have a homeless clinic that we run to attempt to do that. Of course, we have a limb evaluation amputation prevention program that I run that specifically focuses on this element. I'm hoping that the lessons I learned through the Presidential Leadership Scholar Program will allow me to take it, you know, to the next level. We've already started it, just the next level. And so if you go online, the reason you were saying congratulations, I think, for now is because they just announced the class and I'm the class of 2023. So I'll be starting in D.C. on January 24th. So just a couple of weeks from now. That's great. I better go shopping. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get the suit jackets, but just from the top up, okay? Just from the top up. More scrubs <laughs> down below. But but if you guys want to apply, absolutely look, because I think applications open in June or July, and it's a six-month application process with paperwork and an interview. But you guys would be perfect for it. So take a look, please. I'd love to have some of my colleagues, you know, as part of this. Yeah, I mean, one thing that has been a recurrent theme in our discussions on Backtable is that we're all so siloed. And so the more we can learn for folks outside of our discipline, the better we do. I completely agree. All right, Dr. Dua, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about in regards to your pack? No, if it, the pack, um, in whatever form, whether it's rolled into the, the larger one or we do the independence, either way, will be on stage front and center for the 2024 election to help people who are good get into Congress. It's a federal base pack. And so please, if you would go to our website and if you're interested in donating, we would be incredibly grateful. All of the money goes to the PAC, specifically for the people who like do the pieces like compliance and whatnot, and obviously the candidates. What's that website for the folks that are listening? www.healthcareforaction.com. For is spelled like F-O-R. Uh, yeah, excuse me. I'm sorry. Yes, F-O-R. Um, www.healthcareforaction.com. Awesome. Okay, great. That's really great. Our listeners will have that option too. Yeah. Please go check out our work and, and look on there. I mean, you know, you can just tell from this conversation, like, obviously, if I was like in politics and this is my thing, I would just be like, oh, this is the website and this is the, but you know, the fact that you even have to prompt <laughs> that proves that this is really a homegrown, we're trying to make a real difference. But we did it in just a month. We got two people in Congress. And, the, and if you contact me, I'll tell you a little bit about how we did it. It really was like some serious work. But we were responsible. So partially, of course. So I um, really think it makes a big difference. And, and don't forget, you have a voice. Do you have a financial goal for the 2024 election that you're trying to hit? Yes. If we can hit at least 300,000 to half a million, we raised over 100,000 in the one month for this, or these five people. But the more we raise, now that the PACs have laws, particular laws, if you're a PAC, the max donation that a PAC can take is $5,000. But if you're a super PAC or a hybrid PAC, you can take as much. And that's where you hear about, oh, this candidate got $8 million from this big guy, you know? That's where you hear about that kind of stuff. But then PAC spending matters. Like if I as a PAC want to spend on a candidate, I can spend directly on that candidate by giving to their campaign a certain amount of money and the max donation again, 5000 And then with the rest of the money, I run ads for them targeted to their particular region. So one of our people, Dr. Kermit Jones, ran in California, for example. One of the problems over there, unfortunately, as you know, with the fires that affect the homes over there, that's a big deal. And so having some sort of insurance to help people whose homes get burned down, that was something that was important to that community. So, you know, we talk about the fact that he had a wonderful plan. Unfortunately, he wasn't elected. But he had a wonderful plan for that. And so that's the kind of thing that we do. It's very, very targeted locally. And we have that ability because we're small and we're nimble. 
So it doesn't take like it's not a hundred campaigns that we have to go through. We don't have to go through a bunch of people with signatures. I just say this is the right thing to do. And of course, with the board, you know, ask the board. And so the amount of money is directly associated with how much we can help that candidate move forward. But if we become a super PAC, which we are not in the process of doing currently, then we can take unlimited donations. Got it. Well, this has been really informational for me. I'm honestly just captivated by your energy and your enthusiasm. No, thank you. Um, and you're, you seem like a very capable individual. And I just wish you all the best in the creation um, and the management of this endeavor. Thanks for being on the show. Oh my gosh, it's absolute pleasure. Thank you, thank you. And thank you to all of you for listening to this. And I hope to see you in my email box and in the money box for Healthcare for Action. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louie Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 